The following episode of Annals on Call is brought to you by Annals of Internal Medicine. The views and opinions expressed by the hosts and participants during this episode are their own and do not necessarily reflect the views of the American College of Physicians, the editors of Annals of Internal Medicine, or the institutions that the speakers are affiliated with unless so identified. All relevant financial relationships have been mitigated. Information contained herein should never be used as a substitute for clinical judgment. For more episodes, links to CME and MOC, or to view disclosures, visit go.annals.org slash on-call. The determination of initiation based on procalcitonin for these classically presenting patients is not necessary. It really requires clinical evaluation. That really applies to every test in medicine, which I think that you would agree with as well. Welcome to Annals on Call, a podcast based upon articles from the Annals of Internal Medicine in which we discuss the implications of the article for you, the listener. This is Dr. Bob Centaur. I'm Professor Emeritus at the University of Alabama at Birmingham and former chair of the Board of Regents for the American College of Physicians. This episode of Annals on Call features once again, an article from Annals for Hospitalists titled, A Critical Use of Procalcitonin Testing in Pneumonia. In this revisiting of the procalcitonin question, we're joined by Dr. Josh Stripling, who's an assistant professor and head of antibiotic stewardship at UAB. We hope this gives more context to the question of when and how to use procalcitonin. Josh, thank you so much for uh, joining us. As you know, we've previously done a podcast based upon this article for uh, Annals on Call, but some people really wanted some more information, wanted to hear a slightly different viewpoint, and I thought that this is such an important topic that it'd be worthwhile to go uh, over it again. The article really focuses on, does procalcitonin help us better take care of patients with community-acquired pneumonia. Now, I could get into a whole discussion of what the heck is community-acquired pneumonia, but from your perspective, leading antibiotic stewardship, do you see this as a helpful tool? And if so, why? And and if not, why? And uh, I think, you know, procalcitonin for all of us in medicine, especially infectious diseases and stewardship was you know, this hopeful godsend to really help us understand when a person has a viral pneumonia or when a person has a bacterial pneumonia. And really in the early studies, you know, I think uh, there was a lot of promise um, that was had there. But, you know, as you look across all the studies, all the interpretations, the evaluations, you know, there, there definitely is some benefit for procalcitonin. But the problem with it is just the heterogeneity of all of these studies and really in its applicability in the patients that we see on a day-to-day basis in the hospital. And I think that's really where the challenges lie. You know, I think Dr. Gilbert pointed out um, some of the multitude of, of things that can elevate a procalcitonin outside of a bacterial infection. And some of the challenge that we obviously have with many of our patients with may have a community-acquired pneumonia, but also may have heart failure, also may have a rheumatologic condition, also may be involved in you know, trauma or burn within that perspective. And I think it really makes it very tough for us to apply what does that procalcitonin value mean for that patient? And then better off, who do I use procalcitonin in? Um, so I think that's really the, the largest challenge with you know, a broad use of procalcitonin for that. And I think also we're much better with our stewardship interventions and education on appropriate duration, appropriate implementation of antibiotics for a lot of these conditions. 
where I think we've really started to see less of a benefit of antibiotic or antibiotic initiation and discontinuation based on a procalcitonin evaluation. Do you think the move towards shorter course antibiotics is taking some of the luster away from trying to use procalcitonin? I think it's definitely improving that. You know, I think we still have a ways to go in, in our shorter course durations for a lot of the patients um, that we see. And just as a caveat, you know, a shorter course duration is not a one size fits all for every patient that we see, much like a procalcitonin. But in the context of many of the patients that we see, a shorter course is definitely appropriate. And in those situations, especially knowing that procalcitonin is probably going to have a peak at some point in time, maybe a day or two in the antibiotics or a day of, and then it's going to slowly decrease over time. We know that's related to inflammation or it seems to be related to inflammation. And just because you have that inflammation doesn't mean you have a bacterial process that requires antibiotics. You know, a lot of that just could be cleanup um, through our typical immunologic systems. As you know, I, I do inpatient ward attending. I don't take care of ICU patients. I get a lot of community-acquired pneumonia labels, and some of those patients actually have community-acquired pneumonia. If I had access to procalcitonin, which patients might it be helpful in, and which patients is it just a waste of money? That's the challenging part. Which is that patient that's most likely yeah. to benefit? And, you know, I think if we have, and especially uh, knowing your service practice, you know, the, the classic patient coming in with fevers, chills, rigors, maybe productive cough, you know, clear infiltrate on a chest x-ray, that's pretty consistent with community-acquired pneumonia, and I don't really know if a procalcitonin is going to be that beneficial um, in that patient. Now, if you have the other patient who's coming in with a suspected COPD exacerbation, maybe some shortness of breath, clear you know, exposures within the community of, of a viral uh, etiology, that might be the person that I would consider uh, you know, obtaining a procalcitonin to determine you know, if I start antibiotics, Am I going to discontinue them earlier if I have other things? Or am I really going to start antibiotics in this patient? And I think when we talk about hospitalized groups, that's a little more challenging to understand. Let me just continue on that line. Uh, a fairly common situation is the patient does not have the fever, does not have the productive cough, but has some kind of little infiltrate on their chest X-ray. Might that be a patient in whom a procalcitonin would keep me from continuing the antibiotics that somebody has already started? I think that's probably the group that I would consider it in. But then I think the other challenge is, well, what algorithm of procalcitonin use are you really applying in this situation? You know, the one-time procalcitonin in that world might not be the, the perfect answer. Mm -hmm. You know, you might need that serial procalcitonin, which means that somebody would have had to consider ordering the procalcitonin before you evaluated the patient and said, let's order the procalcitonin. So I think that's a little bit of the challenge of the algorithm. I do think if you had, and this is where I, I think really procalcitonin is of most benefit, if you had the right clinical scenario, right, the right patient where you think this is pretty low likelihood and that procalcitonin is negative, I think that's a person that I would definitely consider de-escalating antibiotics and would be supported by that. Um, by the literature to do such, but it's not everything. So I think, you know, you still would need close contact with that patient and obviously evaluating them, you know, if they're still hospitalized or, you know, maybe a quick follow-up with their primary care doctor if they're discharged at that time or a return protocol if they develop worsening symptoms. So what I think I hear you saying is before you order the procalcitonin, you need to, to do a clinical evaluation. 
if there's a low probability of bacterial infection and you just want to confirm that because someone else has suggested there was a bacterial infection, maybe the procalcitonin will be helpful to avoid having to give antibiotics. But a classic bacterial, somebody with rigors, somebody with drenching sweats and productive cough, those patients, you're just spending money because you're going to give them antibiotics anyway. And so clinical judgment on when the procalcitonin might help you feel more comfortable about not using antibiotics might be what I think I hear you saying. I completely agree with that. You know, I I, I think we would even be supported by our, again, the studies as well to say, the determination of initiation based on procalcitonin for these classically presenting patients is not necessary. It really requires that clinical evaluation. And I would say that really applies to every test in medicine, which I think that you would agree with as well. What is my pretest probability of this? And what is this test result really going to show me at that point in time? Then, you know, I think it gets complicated when it's elevated and you may have those other things related to it. Did you expect that test result or did you not expect that test result? You know, if it's low, we know the negative predictive value in those situations with the procalcitonin in the right situation is the right way to go. If it's elevated and we have other things, you know, CKD, somebody on some, you know, immunotherapy, you know, there are questions to even have, does that mean that that's a bacterial pneumonia? I don't know if I'm going to withhold antibiotics in that situation, but I think that's the questions we really need to be asking before we order the procalcitonin. But that kind of pushes who gets the algorithm, who doesn't get the algorithm in, in making that difficult to apply. Is there any role uh, when someone is COVID positive? Does COVID cause the procalcitonin to go up even though it's a virus? So we definitely know that there are multiple studies out there uh, and, and really in a the early days when we were admitting these patients, uh, you know, CRP, sometimes a procalcitonin were, were recommended in those situations to kind of help us. And, you know, I think that that really, um, you know, it's no longer recommended or, or, or in the evaluation for these patients. It goes back to that early day of the procalcitonin, viral, bacterial, viral, bacterial. Then mm-hmm. now we have a clear viral process that is, is very severe that causes elevated procalcitonin. Actually, one of the, the most elevated procalcitonin cases that I've actually seen was a patient that had adenovirus pneumonia, had ARDS and everything else within that. But it was really that that light bulb to say, wait, maybe procalcitonin doesn't really differentiate between viral, bacterial, as well as my brain wants it to say that it does, which adds a little bit of those caveats. So we, we definitely see it. And again, that's just that process of kind of systemic inflammation that develops um, and sets off the right cytokines and procalcitonin development. So I know that you're very interested in a variety of things that require long courses of antibiotics, including osteomyelitis, but also endocarditis. Is there any role in these things that we're giving six weeks of antibiotics? Is there Are there data that says it's worthwhile? Has anybody studied whether procalcitonin might help us shorten the course in, in such patients? I am sure that there are probably some groups out there looking at it, but I have not seen any formal evaluation or literature to suggest that that's something that um, can be utilized. Um, Procalcitonin does come up in diagnosis of kind of prosthetic joint infection, but we don't really use it in the determination of duration of therapy in those settings. You know, even with ESR, CRP that we order quite frequently in monitoring of those patients really don't correlate very well with you know, do I need to continue antibiotics or do I not need to continue antibiotics? And I think a lot of it is 
much like you know community-acquired pneumonias, applying the guidelines, using the guidelines effectively within that, and then also the clinical judgment and expertise that you know develop over time with that, which is a, a little bit of a challenge when we have a test. We want it to say yes, no, but really it does require a lot of that clinical judgment and expertise in order to understand things. As someone who does a lot of consulting on infectious disease service, how often do you order procalcitonin and what are the usual situations in which you recommend that the team get a procalcitonin? I would probably say that I rarely, if ever, recommend a procalcitonin, especially in the hospitalized setting. I think there are some situations where some individuals have obtained a procalcitonin, whether they knew what they were doing with it or not, that I've use that with my other lab test and my clinical assessment to say, I know you really want antibiotics in this patient, but they're clinically doing better and their procalcitonin is, you know, less than 0.25 or less than five in whatever situation. I think based on what you've treated this person for in this lab test, that you may actually be able to discontinue those antibiotics. So I usually use it more kind of in support of my clinical reasoning and, and kind of guiding uh, the consulting group into what I think is is the best course of action for that patient and why. We do see it ordered quite frequently, as I'm sure many of the listeners do as well. And I don't know if I've seen it ordered in a, in a regular pattern where it actually is effective um, for that. I think a lot of us really kind of use it as our, is this patient sick or are they not sick? But we know that they're intubated, they're on a ventilator, they just had surgery, you know, they're on multiple antibiotics. It's quite clear that this individual is sick. It's just, you know, how are you really applying that that procalcitonin value to your management? And I don't think many know the answer. I think that all lab tests, as you said, have to be judged with clinical context. And so you can't just have an algorithm that, that only has a lab test. You also have to weigh everything else. Seems like procalcitonin helps with certain patients. Uh, it gives you a little uh, ammunition to convince people they really can discontinue antibiotics, but it's not a panacea. I would agree. You know, I think it's all in context and we have, you know, a world of, of care and medicine, even when we're applying algorithms, you know, it's over a course of a week in an ICU or a week in the hospital and they've been seen by three different hospitalists or three different you know, fellows or things otherwise. And we're asking them to apply clinical judgment and this lab test, you know, to how they're going to manage the patient. And I, I don't think everybody applies it similarly, obviously, um, within that context. But also, you know, in all of the procalcitonin, you know, studies and, and recommendations that you will see, it, it does say exactly that. This is not a panacea. This is a support tool to your clinical judgment within that. We even see that in other stewardship-related you know, diagnostics. Uh, one it, that comes to mind is, you know, in our PCR blood culture tests within that. So uh, obviously we've initiated at our institution and, and it allows us for some rapid diagnostics of positive blood cultures. But in the studies, if you just give them the results of these PCRs, most providers really don't discontinue antibiotics based on those results. They're just not familiar with it. They don't really know what it means. They don't understand it in the context of their patient. But when you add those results plus antibiotic stewardship interventions or oversight of someone who's got a little more clinical expertise on those results, then you really see the benefit. So I think that's really the problem with procalcitonin is, you know, we give you that lab test, but we really don't give you the context as a group, as, you know, medical providers to, to understand what that results means in the context. 
we should have some experts who come around and see that, but you know, that that's a different uh, resource uh, for hospitals and, and for, for patients for sure. Well, Josh, thank you so much for uh, joining us on the podcast. I think that you put this potentially important diagnostic test into the, into the context that will help learners and practicing physicians use it and interpret it better. I appreciate you uh, letting me come speak with you and provide some of my opinion, I guess, on this. And I hope as we go forward, you know, more procalcitonin studies come out that we do find uh, that space where it really can be used effectively and effectively in the, the right way. So uh, excited for the future. Now it's time for Bob's Pearls. The first thing that becomes very apparent uh, in our discussion is that procalcitonin is a test, and like all tests, has sensitivity, specificity, and requires clinical judgment. Our clinical judgment should indicate whether the procalcitonin result might change what we're going to do. Dr. Stripling points out that if someone has a classic presentation of pneumonia and we're using short-course antibiotics, that getting a procalcitonin test just is spending money. Sometimes procalcitonin helps us not give antibiotics, but we have to take that into the context of the clinical picture. The bottom line for procalcitonin and all other tests is it requires clinical judgment to know when to order a test and how to interpret a test. Thank you so much for listening to this podcast. Information contained herein should never be used as a substitute for clinical judgment. For more episodes, links to CME and MOC, or to view disclosures, visit go.annals.org slash on call.